This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. We welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with the message that Jesus is alive today. Now today's lesson is titled, Honestly, You Shouldn't Have, and it comes from 2 Samuel 4, 1 through 12. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talking could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song is ever played, there's utility bills and tower rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with a tax-deductible gift. So won't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648. And there we can take your information safely and securely over the phone or mail us your gift. Word Talking, P.O. Box 4334, Mississippi 39304. Now your gift to Word Talk Inc. is IRS approved as a 501c3 tax exempt ministry. Your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson where we've been going through 2 Samuel, you can do that by going to our podcast website. That's Radio Bible Class with no spaces between radiobibleclass.podbean.com or catch us wherever you listen to your podcast. We're there too, whether that's on TuneIn, whether that's on iTunes, whether it's on Google or Amazon, or wherever you listen, we're there too. Just search for WMER Radio Bible Class with no space between Radio Bible Class. As I said, over the last several weeks, we've been going through this book of 2 Samuel, and we started off with David hearing about the death of King Saul that ended 1 Samuel. And David heard about it, and he was saddened. And then he wound up killing the very man, the Amalekite, that told him about it. He told him that, who are you to kill God's anointed? But then we saw in the second chapter that David went to God and said, what's next? What do you want me to do? Do you, Is it time for me to leave the land of the Philistines and go after what you've promised me? And so we saw that he went to Hebron. That's where God told him to go. And there he was anointed king of the tribe of Judah. Now, the rest of the 11 tribes didn't go with him. There was a man named Abner. And Abner wanted his power. Abner was the number two man to King Saul. He didn't want King David. He wanted his own power. So he put a puppet up there, and that was Ishbosheth. Now, Ishbosheth was a son of King Saul through a concubine, or that's what theologians believe, because we didn't hear anything about him all through 1 Samuel. And because of this rebellion by Abner, we now have this two-king situation. And then in the second half of chapter 2, we saw the bloodshed started because of this battle, this war between these two nations inside the nation of Israel. And so we saw right there, there was a bloody battle. And then we saw at the beginning of chapter 3, it said this battle went on. And the longer that it went on, the house of David became stronger and the house of Saul became weaker. And last week, that's where we talked about that God's plan takes time. This battle went on and on. Matter of fact, it went on for almost two years is what the theologians say. And at the end of that, we find that Abner dies. Abner realizes he's about to lose his power, so he strikes a deal. He says, let's make a deal. He comes to David, and he says, hey, I can get you the nation of Israel to make you king, but you have to agree that you'll take care of me. And so they have a big feast, and as he's leaving, in comes Joab. That's David's number two man, his general of his army. He says, what have you done, David? 
We had him in our hand. We could have killed him. And yet you let him go peacefully. And so he sends a messenger to come back and to meet him at the gate. And there Joab kills him. And so we find that David goes ahead and has the funeral and he weeps. And at the end of that, we see that the people saw that David didn't want him killed, that this was by the hand of Joab. And that's where we pick up. But before we do, let me ask you a question. Has someone ever done something for you that you really didn't want them to do? You know, that's where I came up with the title of, honestly, you really shouldn't have. That's the answer we give a lot of times. We don't want to say, no, we don't want to say, why did you do that? We just say, honestly, you really shouldn't have done that for me. I don't really want to spoil it for you, but we're going to see that very thing happen today. There's two men that worked for Abner, and they wind up killing King Ishbosheth. And David pretty much tells them and says, honestly, I really didn't want you to do that. I, you shouldn't have done that for me because I didn't want you to do it. With all that said, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1, and I'll be reading out the ESV. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. And we're going to stop right there and unpack just this one verse to start with. I want to look at this one verse in a couple of translations. In the NIV, it says that when they heard about the death of Abner, that he lost all his courage, that being Ishbosheth, and all of Israel became alarmed. The New Living Translation says it this way that he lost all courage and Israel became paralyzed with fear. And so for my note takers out there, the first thing I want you to see is that courage fails without God. The plan of King Ishbosheth and what was going on in the 11 tribes, not in the tribe of Judah, was all based on man's ability. Abner had set up this puppet. And so when King Ishbosheth heard that the man who put him and propped him up on the throne was dead, what did he do? He lost all courage. He knew that day was a bad day for him, not just because he lost the man that propped him up, but he knew his day was numbered. The man he trusted to gain his position now was gone. And because he was gone, that meant that his position would surely be gone soon. Ishbosheth was in a weak position because he trusted in a man. He trusted in a human being. And now that human being is gone. But not only did it scare Ishbosheth, and did he understand that he was weak and that he was probably very limited in his time, the Bible says it also paralyzed the nation of Israel. Losing Abner who was really their only leader, robbed them of their courage. See, Abner, like I said, had put King Ishbosheth on the throne. But everyone saw that he really functioned as the leader. Even as a general, he really acted as a leader, and Ishbosheth was just a puppet ruler. Abner's out of the picture. You have this weak leader. This sets up a stage for conspiracy and violence. Again, I told you this could be made into a movie. Here we see an act where this conspiracy of overthrowing the king comes to play. Best I can tell, the reason why this happened is that people love to do things for their selfish reason. Look at verse 2 with me. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Banah and the other was Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin of Beroth. And Beroth also was counted part of Benjamin the Berothites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there till this day. So what we see here, first of all, 
Now Saul's son had two men. Notice this is the second time in this chapter it says Saul's son. What the Bible is trying to show us is that there is still a lineage of Saul that is still leading the nation of Israel. And God has declared through Samuel that that will end. Now you might remember last week we talked about how David asked for Michal back. And Michal becomes his wife again. But we'll see as we study 2 Samuel that she never bears a child. Now David, theologians believe, was asked for Michal back so that he could have a child and it would bring the nation of uh, back underneath him. It would give him strength politically because the lineage of Saul would carry on through his daughter. But we see that the Bible right here is trying to show us that there is an end to Saul's lineage as being king and ruler. This verse shows us that there are these two brothers that felt their time had come. They decided to take things into their own hands, very similar to what Abner did. Bana and Rechab were both captains of raiding parties. They were little uh, squadrons of men. And they were used to making quick judgments, and they had to act quickly, and they act on the judgments they made. And so maybe they sensed the mood of the people, and, and so maybe they felt like this weak king stood in the way of David being the king. They needed another strong king now that Abner's out of the picture. Maybe they felt like, well, David's already killed Abner. Word hadn't gotten back from where he weeped over Abner. They think, we sent a messenger down there and David killed him. He's going to come do worse to us. Maybe that's what they're thinking. So we've got to get with David. We've got to show him that we're a part of his allegiance. Whatever it is, they made some quick judgments and they act on them. They felt no loyalty to anyone but themselves. They want to win a favor to David. So they know Ishbosheth where he lives. They know that they can get in because of their leadership. They plan to kill the king. How does this apply to you and me? Unfortunately, some of us are just like Abner. Some of us are just like these two men that we plan and make decisions on a basis of our self-interest. We leave God out of the equation. If you've gone to church any amount of time, you've seen people that have done this. They have their own agenda, and for whatever reason, and because it is favorable to them, they do what's not necessarily best for the church, but they do what's best for them. What are you planning? What have you done in your life? What have you learned from doing things in your life when you do it without God's blessing or God asking God first? If you're like me, the times I've done that, uh, most of the time I fell flat on my face. So we need to learn just whenever we do anything without God, then first we won't have courage. We saw that. And second, it'll blow up in our face. So let's continue. Look at verse four with me. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came to Jezreel, and his nurse took him and fled. And she fled in her haste, and he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. And we're going to study more about him and his story. But what happens here is the tradition was when a king died, whoever the new king was, he would come in and they would kill the lineage. They would kill all the family so that there would be no quarrel over who was to be the new king. And so Jonathan's nurse, who's taking care of his son, hears about the death and she runs. And as she's running, he's five years old. She drops him and he becomes lame. He becomes crippled. Now you might ask him, why would the Bible have this right here? I know we're going to see it later. 
But why is it right here? Well, again, the Bible's trying to show us the lineage and what's left of Saul's lineage that's there. But let's continue on. Let's look at the evil plan that is there. Look at verse 5 with me. Now the sons of Ramon of Bereth, Rechab and Bana, sat out, and about the heat of the day, that'd be around noon, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noon rest. Let me just stop right here and say, I find this a little odd. If he was paralyzed, if he was failing, if he was nervous, when I'm like that, I can't sleep. But somehow he's been able to relax enough that he's now at his house and he's taking a nap. Look at verse 6 with me. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. Really nice guys there, aren't they? And when they came into the house, as he lay in his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. And they took his head and they went by the way of Rahab all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. And we're going to stop right there for now. So the second thing I want you to see, courage fails without God, but sin is sin, no matter the intentions. We're going to see that they intended for this to be good. They took the head because in those days, the head was proof that he really was dead. And so you want to prove to David that they've killed Ishbosheth and he's going to be happy with them. It doesn't matter that that's a sin to kill an innocent man, and they do that. But they did it because, hey, it's the right thing to do. You should be king. He's a weak king. He was a puppet king, and you should be happy with us. Sin is sin, no matter the intention behind it. Why did they bring the head of Ishbosheth to David? Because they thought that David would reward them. He would reward them for killing the man who stood between him and the throne. He would reward them because they were able to get vengeance on the man who was the lineage of the person who had tried to kill him for over a decade, for over 10 years. He had run for his life. They thought they would be rewarded. And for you and me, it's probably easy for us to think, I'm glad I didn't live back then. Well, what about the things that happen today? What about the violence that are in homes, murders that are on the street, escalating acts of terrorism? murder through abortion. When we don't stand up, when we don't make a stand for what is right, we accept that sin is sin. And that's not what the Bible teaches us. See, time has passed, but things haven't changed that much. People still do terrible things these days for selfish reasons. Each of us can stand here today and think about someone or even a time in our life where we have done something with good intentions that we shouldn't have done. We didn't check with God. We didn't ask God. We had full intentions of what we thought the outcome would be. Yet we were surprised. Sadly, the fallacy in their plan was they didn't see everything. They only saw Ishbosheth and they knew Abner was dead. They didn't know about Mephibosheth. They didn't know about another person in the bloodline. They think they've taken and gotten rid of all Saul's people. Look at that with me real quick. Look at what they say to David. Look back at verse 8 with me. And brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and his offspring. In other words, what they're saying is, He's done. The Lord has avenged this bloodline, and it's done. And we've done it for you. 
He used us. And that's the other thing we can learn from this. Sometimes people use God and they twist it. God will never ask you to sin for his greater good. He won't do it. If it's in the Bible and, he, and you do something directly against the Bible, it's not of God, it's of you. And so we see right here, these two men had the best intentions, or so they think they're justifying their sin, and they're saying that God used us to give you the promise that he promised you. See, but David understood that that's not how God works. God doesn't sin to give us a promise. God just lets that promise play out. And that's an important fact we need to remember. God doesn't sin, but God can use sin to make his way, his plan play out. And we're going to see that's what happens here. God didn't tell them to do this, but now God can take this lemon and he can make lemonade. And whatever's gone on in your life, maybe someone did something to you and you're thinking, God, why did you allow this to happen? God, why did this happen to me? Why is this going on? This isn't of your will. But God can take that. Even though he didn't command it, he didn't direct it, someone did that out of their free will, God can use the outcome of that for the greater good. So we looked at my first point, courage fails without God. We looked at my second point, sin is sin no matter what the intention is. Look at verse 9 with me. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the son of Ramon of Bereth. As the Lord live, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And we're going to stop right there because I want to unpack this. David tells them, the Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Do you not hear the faith that David has in Lord God Almighty, El Shaddai? He says, the Lord has kept me safe through all my adversity. And what my point is, is that our faith grows in our daily walk. As David had to go through all the trials that he went through, as we look back through 1 Samuel, we see that he was anointed. And once he was anointed, he had already been kept safe when a bear attacked and a lion attacked as he was watching the sheep. Now we see Saul attacks him, yet he's able to stay safe. He has a friend now named Jonathan that became his friend when he slew Goliath that the Lord kept him safe in that adversity. And then we see the 10-year run. Time after time, he could have taken King Saul out, but he wouldn't because he knew he was not supposed to sin. He was not supposed to touch God's anointed. That sin is sin, no matter of the intention. And so he didn't. But he says, as he's walked through his life, that God has helped me through my adversity time and time again. The whole book of Psalms, the Psalms that David wrote, are all about him giving thanks for God, uh, help me with this enemy that I'm in. And I praise you for taking care of me, keeping me safe. Lord, give me the strength to have the wisdom. Lord, give me the strength to praise you even in the storm. Turn with me real quick to Psalms 49, 6-8. Because I think this is a similar answer that David, we're going to see, gives to these two. This is what David wrote. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, and that he should live on forever and never see the pit. What is David saying right here in this psalm? David is saying we just can't fix stuff. That's not the way that life works. Here he's saying you can't throw money at something and fix it. When you do it your way, then you have to reap the consequences 
And so we see that David tells them immediately that God has seen me through all adversity. And it is God. It's not me that did it. It's not my riches that have done it. It's God who's put me where I am. And we need to have that same view that we need to understand that when we walk daily with God, our faith grows to the point that David is right here, that he's able to tell these two that it is God that has helped me through. Nothing I've done, it's all God. Unfortunately for these two, this isn't where David ends. Matter of fact, we see that God's judgment will judge all sinners. And that's my final point. Look at verse 10 with me real quick. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziglag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his own bed, shall I now require his blood at your hands and destroy you from this earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. After David tells them about how God has been his strength, then he reacts very quickly and precise. There was no hesitation. His response to this deed, which they did, obviously to gain his favor, was identical to the reaction when he learned of Saul's death. One, he reminds the brother of his response to the man who claimed to have killed Saul. He says, when he came to me, said, look, Saul is dead, thinking he brought me good news. I had him arrested and executed in Ziglag. The one that thought I would give him a reward for the news, I killed. But right there in verse 11, he accuses them for being worse than the one who claimed to have slain God's anointed. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house, in his own bed, Therefore, I shall now require his blood at your hands and remove you from this earth. David saw their act as an unjust assault on a defenseless man. Ishbosheth had been asleep in his own house. David even calls him a righteous man, a righteous person. And just like he told him in verse 9, David understood that being God's man meant that he trusted God to make him king, not to captains in the army of Ishbosheth. David understood it was in God's time that it would happen. It was in God's way that it would happen. And David has been waiting patiently, and he's been honoring God the whole time. And he knows that God will reward him and make him king one day. Otherwise, he wouldn't anointed him. So he waits upon the Lord. I like what one theologian said is that the head of Ishbosheth wasn't what upset him, having that brought to him. David was used to seeing severed heads. He carried the head of Goliath around as a trophy for a period of time. David knew that Saul and his descendants were truly not his enemy the same way that Goliath was his enemy. And because of David's reliance and faith in God, he's not going to accept their evil deed. Even though it may seem to serve a good purpose, even though it may have had the best intention, even though it may unify Israel and make David king of all Israel, even though it may have been for the greater good, God calls us to righteousness. No follower of Jesus, no servant of God can ever agree with evil that is done. I don't care what the law of the land is. I don't care what man says. If the Bible says it's sin, it's sin. And we as a follower of Christ have to follow the Bible. And so right here in verse 12, we see that David is an example of the judgment that's coming one day for those that sin. David's command is quick and swift. And he executes them immediately. 
Now, this may sound barbaric to you, but this was meant to be a sign of what they did to common criminals in those days. And so them being hung this way were an exhibition of criminals and they weren't buried. I'm already out of time, so let me close with this final thought. How do we apply this to us? Why did David want the bodies of these two men to be treated so harshly? I believe it was because he wanted to serve a deterrent to others. We used to do things this way years ago. Hanging was conducted in a public place. There was the electric chair. People thought, though, all this was too much cruel punishment. And so they said, we need to abolish that. They claim that the death penalty doesn't prevent murders. I personally and strongly disagree with that. Perhaps many murders are committed with no thought of the consequences. Still, I would suspect that many have stopped short of murder because they didn't want to be put to death. I'll give you a spoiler alert. Next week, we're going to see that David becomes king over all the nation of Israel. It took time. It took patience. But God was going to fulfill his promise. And this is typically the way that God brings about his promises and purpose. God is never in a hurry like we want him to be. But God is always on time. He's never late. He's never early. He's always on time. As I was preparing this lesson, I thought about David had times, I'm sure, that he doubted that God really wanted him to be anointed. Did God really want him to be king? But through the trials, through the adversity, he says, God has always been faithful to me. We read that in verse 9. And I don't know what God has promised you. I don't know what vision that God has given you. I don't know what dream that God has given you. I don't know where God has placed you other than I know that you are to be where you are. Just like David, sometimes we have to wait, though, for a significant amount of time for God to reward and to show us and give us what he promised. But we have to be faithful. We're called to be patient and faithful. We live in a world today that is obsessed with instant everything. We have microwave for instant food. We have fast food. We have one-hour dry cleaning. Unfortunately, we've allowed this way of life to come into the Christian walk. We often want things that God has promised us or what God needs to give us. We want it instantly too. But God is telling you today, be patient. It's in His time. He will finish what He promised you. Be what verse 9 says. Allow God to walk faithfully with you and redeem you through your life through every adversity that comes your way. Trust in Him and not your own plan. We get it mixed up. God didn't call us for the results. God called us to be faithful. God called us to walk faithfully with Him and patiently in Him. And when we do that, we will be blessed beyond measure. Let us pray. Dearly Father, we come before you today, Lord. We thank you for this time together. Lord, I appreciate this short chapter right here and there's a lot to be learned. We see just the way the world responds. We see that there is this plan that's put into place. We have two men that decide they're going to do something for the good. They have an intention for the good or they want their selfish gain. But sin is sin and you teach us that and you call us to walk faithfully and to be patient, to wait on you. We're to say, honestly, I, I re- you shouldn't have done that for me because sin is sin. But when we do walk faithfully with you, our faith will grow. Our endurance will be stronger. 
And Lord, let us always remember that you are going to judge every sinner. There's one today that may be listening that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray today they would understand that there is a day, just like these two stood before David, that they're going to stand before you. And they are going to be judged on their sins. And if we haven't asked you into our heart, if we haven't recognized that we are guilty, we're all sinners and we're guilty, and the only way we can stand before you and not get what we deserve is through the blood of your son that was sacrificed on the cross. Lord, I pray today that they'll understand that. Lord, they'll ask you to be Lord of their life. They'll admit they need a Savior. Lord, that they will confess with their mouth. They'll believe on your finished work and they'll chase after you. Or maybe there's one listening today that you've been knocking on their heart. You've been saying, hey, you've been doing things without talking to me. You've been doing it in your own strength. And even though some of it worked out, think about all the times that didn't work out. I'm calling you today to lay these things at my feet. Let me be your guiding light. Let me be your GPS. Follow after me patiently. Lord, we thank you that you give us second chances that we can lay it at your feet. Lord, I pray right now that they would do that. Lord, we thank you for your many blessings. And right now, we just ask that you would bless everyone listening today. For it's in your name we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.